Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Eli Knight. Eli is a second-degree black belt under the legendary Hoist Gracie. Eli is best known for his contributions to self-defense and adapting jujitsu to suit the needs of real-life altercations. His social media presence is constant, making him one of the most visible advocates for the art. He's got over 14 years of videos on YouTube with over 22 million views. Eli is intelligent, well-spoken, and he's an absolute gentleman. It was truly an honor to have him on the show. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And leave us feedback, suggestions, and how we can improve the show and consider becoming a patron at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt. Like our page on Facebook to get all the latest at forever white belt. And check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your favorite Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. If you're ever in beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Also make sure to mention the podcast to get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Eli Knight. Eli, great to see you again, man. This is uh, what number three or four for us. <laughs> at least, at least. Three or four. <laughs> May the Wi-Fi gods bless us today. Yes, <laughs> great to see you. All right. So, if people don't know, Eli is a, I believe, you're a second degree black belt under the legendary Hoist Gracie. Yes, correct. <laughs> Things have changed since the last time I spoke to you. And now I've updated my notes. It says something to the effect of former instructor at Three Rivers Martial Arts Academy in Paducah, Kentucky. Can you update us on what's the news there? Sure. Yeah. It's been on the horizon for a little while that I was looking at making a move, looking at making a transition to Charlotte, North Carolina. First of all, I've been with Three Rivers for my entire martial arts duration, 30 years I've been here. So I started to go to Charlotte, North Carolina when I um, met uh, a gentleman named Ryan Hoover with Fit to Fight. We started to collaborate on some projects, um, some videos, things back in the day. And I've been out to there several times. And anytime that I'm there, I, I train and sometimes teach at Fit to Fight. And I'll be going there and teaching. One of the main reasons for moving there in addition to that is that I have a long distance relationship with my girlfriend and long distance relationships suck. So that's, uh, and it would, so whenever you have one, it's, it's always kind of an end game of like, well, who's going to move where and how are we going to make this work? So it made more sense in a lot of ways for me to transition myself out there than for her to come here. So that's what's happening in a nutshell. That's pretty amazing that you've been with that academy for that long. I guess that's a testament to how great the place was. Yeah, I'm actually here right now. I haven't moved. Yeah, (laughs) it is. It's a phenomenal place. We've had five different locations over the years. We started in the back of a karate school. Mm -hmm. And when I started with Jason Hawkins, we were doing all kinds of things. He still does all kinds of things, a lot more even than I do. And and I I still train various martial arts in addition to jiu-jitsu. And we both have grown and and evolved in a lot of ways. But uh, he and I have been together. This this entire time, and so and it's it's been a, an amazing journey going from a, a little group of folks meeting in the back of a karate school doing jujitsu and Filipino martial arts and uh, jiu kundo and judo and aikido at one point, like all kinds of things, and then over the years, um, exploring even more and getting more involved in these different martial arts, and of course transitioning into Gracie jujitsu and into um, Muay Thai and and all kinds of things too, and then to make 
different moves and, and grow and expand over the years and then wind up in our current location here. It's been a fantastic, amazing journey. And I'll, I'll always consider Three Rivers my home. It's funny when you tell people that you're moving after you're rooted into a, a city and into an environment for that long of your life. And then you tell people that you're you're moving like out of state. I feel like I'm dying. Like I feel <laughs> like people are, are walking up to me like I have a terminal illness and it's like, oh, I've got to spend time with you before you, you go away. And you, you know, I'm, I'm, it will be a little strained on on the relationships in some ways, but it's I don't plan to die within the next few weeks, so it's it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's so perfect because you've always been a man of change. I've noticed, like, I mean, you are so prolific in the jujitsu community, and with the amount of content that you put out, a lot of people do only know you as the jujitsu guy, but you really have a long history in martial arts and other things. And once we stumbled down that road of like self defense, it's wild to see all that other stuff. You've been doing martial arts outside of jujitsu forever. Can you can you touch on some of that path? Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess, you know, when you start in martial arts, especially as a kid, like I was a young teenager when I started, and there's a lot of interest and mysticism. I mean, any kid is, is interested in it. I mean, that's why Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are so popular, right? They were always fascinated by this idea, first of all, of violence and fighting, period. And then also by our natural instinctive insecurity of survival and being able to defend and protect yourself. So, I mean, I think that's kind of, I'm not unique in that way. And I think there's a lot of other motivations that got me started in martial arts that beyond just that and personal ones. But learning when I first started, all we had was Taekwondo in the area of the country that I lived in that I knew of. Meeting Jason back then, it was interesting because he had really started to branch out and explore things. He had a karate background, but he was also, he also had his black belt by that time in, in jiu-jitsu. It was a, a style called Sunukasru jiu-jitsu. So it's easier to just to call it more traditional Japanese style jiu-jitsu, even though I had a Filipino influence to it. Because of the Filipino influence to it, it was a natural derivative of Arnis and of Eskrima and of Kali. And so he was exploring those arts at that time too. And then as a natural byproduct of that at, at that particular time, Indonesian Silat. And so these were fascinating, very exotic kind of martial arts to me. So I was just, I was enthralled with it. And then of course I knew who Dan Asanto was because of Bruce Lee and he was Jason was pursuing an instructorship, which he's been a full instructor under Dan Anasanto for about 35 years now. And he, you know, he has that background as well. And then we started to get into um, a gentleman named Jeff Westfall in Evansville, Indiana, who was really prolific and who has been doing Muay Thai before Muay Thai was cool. He was one of the first people really in the United States that was able to hook up with uh, someone from Thailand to teach Muay Thai. And so we got a lot of our Muay Thai from him. And I still try to keep up with that to this day. Um, I think that that's one of the best striking styles to blend with uh, jujitsu and for, for many reasons. So, you know, all these different things combined and we had very fortunate resources over the years in uh, judo, a gentleman named Roland Odera, who is an absolutely brilliant judo practitioner from like 50s and 60s, probably 60s. I don't want to overdate him, but he, wow. you know, spent some time in Japan playing judo and he and, and, and Kevin Boggess, like he he trained under Roland Odera and that's where we got a lot of our judo from. And so it's, uh, I, I've always been fascinated by all things martial arts. Even whenever I was younger and the mysticism had me, I was okay with the whole pressure point chi power thing. You know, I mean, that stuff was cool to me, even mm -hmm. though now it's, I think it's more of a disservice 
service to have BS flying around like that these days than anything else, of course. But I think that most martial arts, any that have tenure that have like stood around the test of time, there's validity in all of it, you know, from the wildest, weirdest Kung Fu style out there that, you know, in, in practical application seems to have no merit in real fighting. There's still benefit from it. You just have to develop, I think, a little bit of an IQ and an acumen to be able to contextualize and compartmentalize what these martial arts have to offer. I always say that the Aikido and uh, Tai Chi are like the highest forms of martial art. The problem is they're so high of forms that they're basically just philosophies. <laughs> so it's like, if you want it, it's you hold that in the proper context and it becomes a valuable philosophical approach to a lot of different things that have practicality to them. If you approach, you know, we're, we're never going to get to those. We're never going to be able to do the mysticism behind uh, things like Tai Chi, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lot of valid usefulness to it. But anyway, that's kind of how my, my whole philosophy about training martial arts and why I, I have I've done as many different styles and systems and, and everything as I can and try not to hold too many prejudices over the years or be too biased and, or too, uh, uh, what's the word, chauvinistic towards strictly my style. Mm-hmm. Have you always been that type of open-minded like ever since you were a kid? Because it seems like you experiment in everything and not just martial arts, even with technology, when I see you experimenting with different things and coming from the time that you did, you know, as an OG to some extent, right? In some philosophies, it was frowned upon to dabble in other philosophies or in jujitsu in the early days too, like not to train at other, you know, cross training and things like that. How did you navigate all that? Because you were all over the place in the way, you know, you're a curious individual, it's, it seems like. Yeah, the, that is met with some adversity at some points, for sure. I mean, because it, it's, it, it is frowned upon in a lot of ways. But typically, I think at the root of if people frown upon it too hard, if they're too vocally in opposition of you expanding your horizons, then you know I, I get that you can look at someone and, and see that they're all over the place and they're being flippant. And that behavior is, you know, you can disagree with that behavior because you're like, okay, well, jack of all trades, master of none kind of mentality. But at the same time, if you're only stuck in one specific route, one linear focus that you are too unwilling and intransigent to be able to like go and, and explore other things, then that's where things go to die, I think, philosophically a lot of the time. Like I said, though, it, it takes some study to do it constructively because it's the, this is a problem with something like YouTube these days. I didn't have YouTube coming up, and but I was very lucky to have a lot of uh, good resources from various different things. Now, when people start, if you, you go into start a jiu-jitsu class these days and you're fascinated with it. So what do you do? You go home after class or before class and you get on YouTube. Oh my God, you're drinking from a fire hose. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you're, you're going to get everything on there from the weirdest, crazy, wackiest Instagram techniques that are just there to be kind of flashy that you don't have any reference for all the way up to, you know, solid information, which, you know, I, I really hope that I put out more of the solid stuff than, than the, the crazy flashy stuff. But I think that when people don't have any reference, then it's all equal and it's, that can be very damaging. It can be very detrimental to somebody's growth and progression. So you do need to have a little bit of a focus. So you have to rein it in any of that curiosity. Curiosity is good, but it has to be reined in and it has to be done in a analytical and intellectual fashion, I think. But that's kind of my approach to it as far as I maintain that kind of curiosity and try to be as educated as possible in, in doing it. And I've made plenty of mistakes in some of the routes that I've traveled. It's really easy to learn something new or to see something new and just because it's new, it's improved. There's been several times I, I know of that I would find a, a new, better way of doing a technique that this person over here is showing and, and be fascinated by it and then think, okay, well, that way is superior to the way that I initially learned it. You know, right. we'll take like 
some arm bar set up in jiu-jitsu and I learned one way from hoist and that was the way that Elio did it. And that was, you know, that was the way. And then I see somebody else doing it a different way. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know you could do it that way. I'm going to do it that way now. Hmm. And then I'll go back and I'll see, you know, I'll watch Hoist do it again and I'll, I'll see how he teaches it and how he shows it. I'm like, oh, okay. He was doing it this way very intentionally. And the problem with this new way over here is it doesn't take this and this into account. Hmm. And he is taking this and this into account. So sometimes the, the old school is good. Sometimes the new school is good. Speaking of YouTube, you have uh, 14 years worth of videos on YouTube with 22 million views since 2006. Um, wow. It's incredible the amount of volume. The thing what's really interesting is in the early days, as you mentioned, and you kind of allude to, I remember hearing lots of things like, oh, did you learn that on Instagram or did you learn that on YouTube? That kind of thing. Because you, like you said, you know, was, there was some questionable content in YouTube in the early days. There are so many high-level black belts on YouTube now showing just super quality stuff now. What does that evolution look like to you? You know, because having looked at your videos, it's, it has been solid since day one. Well, thank you. I, I hope so. I, I definitely look back on some of my videos with a lot of cringe these days that I was, because I started. I, <laughs> I mean, started video quality things. wise and things like that. Sure, that that has changed. Well, and plus, I started putting videos on. Um, I don't even know if I was a purple belt then. I think maybe I was a. I was maybe a fresh purple belt when I started to do that, and, wow. and so because it was like 2006 or seven. So yeah. it, it, you know, it was it was a long Six. time ago, and I've tried to stay. You know, I wasn't very consistent at all in the beginning because, you know, I was just doing it for fun. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, after 10 years of doing it, I had only gotten 6,000 subscribers. I mean, it took me 10 years to get 6,000 subscribers. Wow. And then something yeah. happened in, I believe, 2017. And I had a couple of videos I put up and they just took off. And um, since then, it's been kind of a precipitous thing. So it's, it's, it's grown a lot just in the past few years of doing it. And, and I'm happy for that. I'm, I'm glad that I, and I hope that my stuff does stick out as uh, being pretty solid in the content. I try not to ever put anything up that I'm, yeah, there, there are times that there's, there's uh, something I'm playing around with that I'm messing mm -hmm. with that, you know, I haven't been doing for a long time, but I've got several, I always have several people behind the scenes that I'm training with that we get down and we drill it and we experiment with it and we see validity behind it. And, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll put some stuff out there every once in a while like that. But I do want to make sure that I don't do the disservice to anybody watching as, um, as to put out something that's, that's haphazard, that's, that's ill-advised or whatever. Because people, like I said, it's, there can be some fascinating things out there. I see some really cool stuff all the time on Instagram and on YouTube. And, and I'm like, that's awesome looking. And if somebody actually pulled that off in a match or a fight or a whatever, that would be incredible. And crazy stuff gets pulled off all the time. So it's hard yeah. to dismiss even the wacky looking stuff sometimes. Buggy um, choke. Uh, exactly. If somebody showed you a buggy <laughs> choke and you had never seen one even remotely land in competition, you'd be like, okay, well, that's, that's BS right there. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to ever see that in competition. We're never right. going to see somebody jump off the side of the cage and do a Superman flying punch and knock somebody out or, or do right. a no time kick off the cage. You know, we're never going to see a spinning back kick knockout in UFC or never, you know, I mean, these, these kind of things like people think that here's the current zeitgeist here. This is, this, this is the current paradigm of what's going to work in competition because this is what is working. You know, these are the takedowns that work. These are the, the guard techniques. These are the whatever. 
but it works until you know it doesn't, and then things don't work until they do. And so that's why I said it's got to be an educational process to be able to sort through the weeds of all of this stuff. Because when you understand beer and bolo, beer and bolo, what is it? It's just a couple of grips and a granby roll at its heart. A granby roll is a fundamental grappling technique, wrestling technique. It works in a, a multitude of different ways. And when you understand how to use that as a sweep, now a sweep transition into a granby roll with a couple of grips and a couple of little shifts of the weight, a little shrimp move. Now you've got a beer and bolo. And that's a, a one that people like to pick on as a, a too hyper sporty. When you think about things in context like that, that's why to me, you know, the whole fallacious argument between um, sport or self-defense or this or that will work and this or that won't. It's like, I get comments all the time. I showed, um, I showed something very gi related. I showed like a, a collar, like an arm wrap collar kind of control and this and that. And I had I think, two different comments. Usually the comments are all always supportive. And I'm very grateful and very fortunate that, that people are so supportive of my stuff. I'm always appreciative of that. But, you know, you get comments, you know, and I had a couple that were like, well, how is this going to work in a fight? You know, when when is this going to be applicable to a fight? And I'm like, well, what do you, what do you call a fight? I mean, if you're going to call, I know what they're talking about. First of all, I know they're talking about a street fight, right? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. It's like, uh, you can call a boxing match a fight. Nobody blinks an eye. Everybody's okay with you calling a boxing match a fight. A boxing match has way more rules and regulations Mm -hmm. than a grappling match. Yeah, we can't punch each other in the face in a grappling match, typically, unless it's combat jiu-jitsu. But like, you can't do that. But everything else that would be illegal in boxing is legal there. So that kind of fight. So Mm -hmm. that's me trolling them back a little bit too for asking a question like that <laughs> but it's i try to if it's not obvious if i don't feel like it's obvious i try to make the, the proper contextual explanation this is a sport move this is for this environment and there's something to be had and I think from even the sportiest moves, training even the sportiest moves that will still apply to at least attributes that you're going to use in in all realms of fighting you seem to have like the it factor. It seems like you're very articulate. You seem to be like an excellent teacher. How did you learn the the art of teaching, the skill of teaching? Well, thank you, first of all. Uh, but I, I think a couple of different ways. Uh, I had great teachers, uh, first of all. And even people that I've learned from that weren't great teachers, if I learned something good from them, then what I would try to do is articulate things. Because I'm you know, i not the best athlete and I'm not the best competitor or anything like that. So what I try to do, though, is I try to take things that... And it takes me a while to learn. I'm a slow learner. I really have to do something a lot and really have to have a lot of things really like expressed to me, particularly for me to get it. But once I get it, I feel like I can explain it to other people. And I think that communication is... The, about the most important thing that we have as a species, you know? So, and when I went to college, I was an English major. So there was a lot of that and it was a communications degree that I wanted to get in. So it was like, I thought that the validity of, of that as it pertains to teaching was very helpful because I was doing martial arts and jiu-jitsu and teaching actually before I even started into a degree like that. So I thought, you know, even if I'm not going to work in a job sector where I'm going to use this degree one day, it's going to help be beneficial to me. So I, I tried to, and that, that's partly why I don't have as severe of a Kentucky accent as I, as I do. It comes out sometimes, but I tried I tried to like be articulate whenever I'm expressing something, you know, and because I want to get it across as best as we can. There's so many hurdles from verbal to psychological and everything else that we have to overcome to convey one authentic idea to another person. 
you have to be as particular as possible and as deliberate with your words as possible. And there's plenty of times that I'll, when I say I look back on things where and I cringe at old videos, it's like, man, you're missing so much. Like I didn't, I didn't point this out, I didn't point that out. And uh, I never want to overly rely on my demonstration because like I said, I'm, I'm not the best athlete or competitor in the world. You know, I'm not just going to be like, hey, watch me do this. And then, you know, learn what you can from it. Because there's plenty of people out there that can do that. And that's all they have to do. That's just not me. <laughs> So was there anything that along the way that you saw that you thought, you know, hey, that's something I don't want to incorporate in terms of my teaching style or my philosophy, whether it's an academy or, or how to teach someone? Yes. I've made mistakes both ways, I think. You know, I mean, I've seen the way that other people teach and wanted to emulate it and it wasn't me. Mm. And then uh, I've seen other people teach and, and think I don't want to teach that way and then wind up seeing the validity of it later. I try not to be too too dismissive right up front. I never want to be uh, condescending to students. I never want to belittle anybody. Everybody is, is struggling. You know, everybody has some kind of difficulty to overcome. And we're doing something that's really damn hard. This is not easy, what we're doing. And even for a seasoned athlete to come in and learn this as a new endeavor. That takes guts. It takes guts for, for the person who is a, a natural athlete to step onto the mat. That takes guts for the person who is not athletic, you know, or the person who's extremely shy or has like social anxiety or whatever. You know, everybody has some kind of internal struggle and we have no idea the levels that it's at. So I think that it's really important to not be condescending, to not be belittling, to not be embarrassing. I'll tease my students and I'll, I'll joke around with them and everything, but I try to always make sure that I have my finger on the pulse as to how far that, that can and needs to go and then try to cut it off before that because it can backfire. You can hit a nerve sometimes and it's like, okay, I, we went too far on that. We, we joked a little too close to the bone on that one or something. And then other ones, you know, you can you can do that. And it's, it's always good fun. If I teach in any setting, if it's a one-hour class or a six-hour seminar or a two-day workshop and I don't have laughs every so often, in junctures, I feel like I don't even care at that point if they're getting the information. Like because it's and it's not just for my own ego. I want them to think I'm funny. It's that I want them to have an enjoyable time. And I, there's a definite correlation between the enjoyment that they get out of that and the, the way that they're going to assimilate the information that they're they're getting from that. So if I'm not making them laugh and smile or have a good time, then I don't feel like they're going to walk away with very much from that, even if they got a good detail here or there. So that kind of thing goes along with that, I, I believe. That's interesting that you touch on that and that you've identified that. There was some study in 2012 or something, some university did. I can't remember. I posted it on Instagram a long time ago with some of the findings. And yeah, the most important was was enjoying, enjoyment. That was the biggest part of the yeah. pyramid. And I think the bottom was like MMA or something, doing MMA or something like that in terms of importance of jujitsu, well, you know, for them. It manifests itself in a lot of different areas. You know, I remember reading something. It kind of goes along in line with that is it was so doctors who are less likely to be sued for malpractice, even if they did something wrong that they could logistically be sued for if they had a good bedside manner and a good rapport with the patient. Uh, police officers are more likely to let you out of a traffic citation if you can make them laugh. Or if yeah, you can yeah. like make them smile or you're that like uh, amicable with your interaction with them. So, I mean, it's, it's human nature, I think, for us to find that positive connection with another individual. And when you can, a lot of great things can happen. And I think that learning and that transfer of information from one person to another happens in a much more natural route whenever that kind of rapport can be established. What makes a great student? Mm. Someone who, first of all, is a, a, a good listener, <laughs> even if they have trouble focusing, is, is willing to like try really hard to focus. Who's someone who is thinking about the material even when they're not in class? 
You know, I think that's an important one. I had the discussion with Jason the other day and we were talking about, man, we were, I don't feel like we were that unique, but maybe we were in the sense that like we wanted to be training all the time. And whenever we weren't on the mat, we weren't in the academy and we were working our job, going to school, whatever we were doing, we were thinking about it and we wanted to be here. We wanted to be training. And I, I see people now and it's fine. It's okay if, if people want to come in and this is the one hour a week that they think about this stuff and this is the one hour a week they're going to do it. And then it's not in their mind at all before or after. Sure. It's just odd to me, you know? So, I mean, I, I think that if you're saying what a, a good student is, it's somebody like that. As somebody who is, they're going to be kind of hard on themselves, but they're, they're also going to forgive themselves. You know, and that's a difficult thing. And that's what a teacher, I think a, a role as a teacher needs to be too, is, is to help out letting that person know you do need to be hard on yourself. You do need to try. You do need to be critical of your progress, but you also need to forgive yourself if you're not making progress compared to this person next to you, because you can't really compare yourself to that person next to you. You you know, look at your personal growth and development. This is a criteria that I use for ranking as well. Like if I, I think that it's important to use personal development as a, one of the factors in ranking an individual. Because there's black belts out there that are good black belts, but you put them up against Gordon Ryan and they look like white belts. So, I mean, mm -hmm. what is that? What does a black belt even mean? Mm -hmm. what, is, what is mastery of any of this stuff? Not to say it's not significant because it is. I mean, the rank is there for a reason and it's you should consider a lot of different factors. There is a performance element of this. This is, this is a performance-based martial art that we're doing here. It's not something where we can just go and, and fill out a written test and you, you get it. You got to be able to perform. You got to be able to fight to some degree. Do you have to be the best fighter at your rank to get that rank? No. Do you have to be better than every white belt to get a blue belt? No, you don't. And so then what is it? What else is it? Your technical knowledge. How can you express it? How can you convey it? How can you articulate what you're doing when you're doing it? That's important, I think, you know, in addition to performing it. But I think too, you know, when you get somebody, the, the thing I always like to compare it to, like if I get someone that walks in and I'm surprised that they can make it from the door to the mat without hurting themselves because they're that uncoordinated or they're that clumsy, they're that awkward, they're that just unaware of where their body is in physical space. And then you get that person doing some fundamental movements. Like that's a huge accomplishment. Hmm. Like, I don't know how this person ties their shoes. They're so like just lost, but now they're doing jujitsu. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's a much bigger accomplishment than a D1 wrestler who comes in and can, you know, choke somebody in, you know, six weeks. And both things are great. You know, both people are great. Every single person is a unique opportunity. Your thoughts a little bit on that, on the belt system itself and how it's evolved since you've gotten into the game. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I hate it. <laughs> I, I really hate like the, you know, just thinking about rank. I want everybody just to train and, and want to get better because they love it. They want to do it. But I know how human nature is. And I know we all, it is nice to be recognized for your accomplishments. And that's what rank ultimately is. It's a recognition of accomplishment and, and the, I guess to a degree, authority of the material and the, the knowledge and whatever. And it's cool. And I, you know, I'm, I like my black belt, you know, I'm not wanting to give it up anytime soon, but at the same time, it, it is, it's, it's very problematic. I don't like visiting a lot of places that and having to go and wear my black belt because it's like you're immediately judged. The nicest people in there are going to judge you. The most mm. welcoming people in there are going to judge you. Mm. And if you don't go in there and behave and perform and do whatever, you know, exactly like you're supposed to in their head, then, you know, all of a sudden they've that's colored their impression of you, mm. you know, and, and I see it a lot. You know, if, if somebody, I mean, if somebody comes in as a visiting brown or black belt from out of town and they come into here and you, you can't help but size them up in your mind, you know, I'll, I'll never be open about that. I'll never be uh, express that to them. I, I want to be welcoming. I want them to feel like, 
this is a great place and a great place to train and nice people. But in my head, I'm like, ooh, man, I wonder where they got their brown belt from. They're not mm. really moving like I would think a brown belt would be moving <laughs> with this amount of training. But, you know, it's it's hard not to. So for that reason, not to mention, like, again, the, the comparison between students, between people. It's like, man, why did this person get a stripe and I did, you know? Like, I've been training just as long as this person over here. I remember when I had my uh, brown belt, I remember going to a couple tournaments, beating guys. And then, like, you know, a few weeks later, I saw them getting their black belts. And I was still at my brown belt. And I was like, damn, ah, that's, that's a little frustrating. But that's a very small part of me. And maybe this is black belt privilege. But, like, I just don't care a whole lot to look at those belts anymore, you know? I mean, hell, you look at somebody like Roberto Jimenez and tell me that that rank is super or, or oh, it, it, yeah. look at that yeah. kid. I mean, yeah. he was blue. He belt was a blue belt at fifteen or sixteen, yeah. and just smoking seasoned black belts. So, as far as that goes, like, what's that even about? But I think it's important if we are going to stick to this ranking system to take factors like personal development, personal growth. I think it was Kyle Terra, and I'm probably going to paraphrase and butcher how he said it, but it's like it's not how good you do jujitsu; it's how good jujitsu has done for you. It's something along those lines. Yeah, I think that's important. It's like you are going to be an ambassador of the art uh, to a degree. But at the same time, it's like, what has jiu-jitsu done to improve your life? And if you get on the mat and, and you're a, a purple belt and a blue belt smokes you, but that blue belt, much bigger, much stronger, much more explosive, much faster, much younger, and you have physical deficits and you have whatever is physically inferior to that person, that stuff matters as well. There's a reason why, and I think wisely, that Nikki Rodriguez wasn't just handed a black belt on day one when he stepped into the academy. He smoked black belts day one, but I mean, does that make him a black belt? No, because he, you know, he he's not an ambassador of the art yet. Now mm. you look at his growth and development and kudos to him for sticking around and not walking in and being like, this jiu-jitsu stuff's a joke. I'm just smashing these guys. He actually stuck around. He learned, he improved, he got better, you know, and he's, he's technical. He understands the technical importance, but that kind of stuff really matters. So how do you handle that situation where you have a student or something that comes up to you and says, Hey coach, I've got two stripes and and this guy's got three stripes now. Why I've been here longer. I'm sure you've run into all those scenarios. Yeah. Especially when we did kids classes, we don't do kids classes anymore. We have young people and we do kids private lessons and we do, we have younger kids that can come in at a younger age into the adult class if they're approved, but we don't have formal kids classes anymore. We're just older kids. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. But we don't have our parents coming to like bitch to the instructor. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why does Johnny only have one stripe on his uh, yellow belt and and this kid over here? Yeah. Oh, it's all the time. You know, yeah. Jiu-Jitsu Karens are a real thing, but it it is. And I've run into that with with adults plenty as well. And it depends on the the person. My curmudgeon inclination these days is if somebody comes up and is like, hey, why do I only have two stripes in this person? That's three. It's to be like, well, because you only have two. And now they're probably going to get another stripe before you ever get another stripe. Just for asking that, because like you're... (laughs) You're missing a fundamental element of what's going on around you if you're at. And I mean, no, here's the thing, though. I'm not I'm not as bad as a lot of people. You ask certain people, hell, if you ask Hoist, when am I going to get promoted? You just tacked on at least six months to the next time you're going to get promoted, yeah. at least. And he he's open about that, too. He's like, don't ask me about rank. Fortunately, I never have asked him. And I would, even when I was like disappointed or something, because I saw that happening around me, like I never thought to ask about that. But getting back to like, like how do I handle that thing? I don't mind someone asking me because it, it is possible whenever you have you know hundreds of students for someone's progress to potentially slip through the cracks, especially when you're not going on strictly a chronological ranking system. You, you do have to have that element of chronology to it because you have to like 
be able to track, okay, well, this person's been training for this long. We need to be looking at them and seeing where their progress is at versus if, you know, somebody's only been training for a few months, then, you know, you're, you're not going to be even thinking about them for this, this next rank or whatever, even if they stand out. So that's important, but it's, it is possible for people to slip through the cracks. And I don't mind someone coming up and being like, Hey, you know, I, I feel like I'm not progressing as fast as somebody else. If, what do I need to be working on? If they ask it framed with, what do I need to be working on? What do I need to be doing different? Then that's a different story. You know, that's respectful. That's, you know, ha- want to have an adult conversation about it. And so I don't have a problem with that. It's if you come and it's like, look, I'm paying you money for this transaction and I'm not getting what I want back in return. And it's like, man, oh, you don't have to pay me money anymore. We don't have to have this transaction anymore. So how's that? Now, I know recently you were at the uh, PGF, Mr. McCaffrey's event. Um, yeah. Was a professional grappling federation? Is that federation, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, sir. So can you, can you tell me how that went and tell us where it's at and, and what it was like and, and just the whole experience? Yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, I absolutely love BMAC. He's an awesome guy. Brandon McCaffrey, he is one of the most technical black belts that I, I know personally. He's, he's incredibly precise. He's an excellent communicator and teacher. And he's someone who didn't have to lose his accent like, like I tried to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he keeps it. He's, he's got that stuff. He's got that Southern draw and it just like, it pulls you in and you hang on every word when he's teaching. He's, he's a great guy. I can't say enough good things about him, but what he's done with the PGF and his vision for it, like, this is when this event being there and being immersed in it, I really got to see what his vision for it, I think is and his vision. And I I fully believe that he's going to manifest this whole vision too is to make it a, a professional league, like a, a professional competition league. He did a great job of finding ways to get these guys to perform at their highest level, to feel like part of actual teams. He, he had a combine, which is, when has that ever done in jiu-jitsu yeah, before? Yeah. Like he has a, a combine, he has a draft, he has um, sponsors for the event, and um, and he had coaches come in. And so it was, it was very cool to see all people behind the scenes working on this and the passion and the energy that was brought to the event and and everyone there had a great time. Like win, lose, or draw, I truly believe that everybody there had a phenomenal experience and they all want to like come back and participate in it. And it's it's only going to grow, I believe, too, because he, he's got all the right elements. He's got all the right ingredients and he's putting it together in a very professional, upstanding way. Even as far down to like the brilliance of like live streaming the matches each night and using Super Chat as another additional way to be able to get these guys. Because you would have people pop into the Super Chat. It's like, Anybody hits a wrist lock tonight, I'm donating twenty dollars to anybody that hits a wrist wrist lock. Wow. You know, anybody that lands a twister, I'm gonna, you know, I'll put a hundred dollars in. I mean, I wow. there was one night that I had to be away from the event because of some other commitments, and I made sure to tune in and watch the live stream. Mm-hmm. And I saw a couple guys off of my team that hit some cool submissions, and I, I put super chat money in myself. So it was like, cool. you know, it, it was that on top of like, you know, the other ways that he took care of everybody. He did it right. He did it right with integrity. And, and that that really kind of is a testament to his character as well, too. Yeah, it was, it was very cool. I, I really hope that it becomes one of the premier events out there. He's also making NFT trading cards for the competitors and coaches and everything. I, yeah. I saw that. Well, that's that's one of the things I want to ask you, too. You're, you've gotten to the NFT game as well, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I'm still working on. I haven't uh, officially like launched mine yet. But yeah, I made the, the armored apes. So uh, it's these... Uh, 
I thought, well, I want to incorporate something making it uh, jujitsu and, you know, kind of putting my personal stamp on it. And, you know, I like the whole ape theme thing. So I, I put an ape and a suit of armor with some jujitsu kanji next to them with different backgrounds and stuff. I've made like a hundred and one of them and uh, I'm going to launch them hopefully sooner rather than later. But uh, right now I'm trying to build up my uh, channel on Discord so that I actually have, you know, some communication with people and get them into that space. Uh, it's an exciting project. I, I got mostly inspired. I've had people talk to me about it several times over the past couple of years, but I got very inspired by watching Drew Weatherhead and his mm-hmm. his experience with it. I, that guy is absolutely brilliant. Like every time I think that he's smart, he like shows me some other way, uh, not intentionally, but I see some other way that he's just absolutely brilliant beyond what I even thought. And he mm-hmm. did his his homework. He really did a good job of researching and finding out how to do it correctly because of the way that he launched his NFT collection and the way that he promoted it and the, the passion he got behind people looking to get into that space and the amount that he sold, that literally is what made him able to like feed his family and keep yeah. his family in, in the country. And he's got a mm-hmm. fascinating story. I really encourage people to like check out his story because it's absolutely fascinating and inspiring him escaping Canada. <laughs> and that's literally what he did was escape yep. Canada with yeah. his family, sold his house, bought an RV and just did the damn thing. Like it's the courage and tenacity and intelligence it took for him to do what he's done. I can't say enough good things about that guy. He's absolutely an inspiration to me. Yeah. He had to leave an academy. I mean, that's huge. You know? Yeah. You know, you guys have a lot of uh, overlap. You know, Drew's been on the show before too. We've got to have him back soon. You know, he's, his story is is fascinating in that he, both of you guys try a lot of these, you know, experiment with a lot of different stuff and see what sticks and some things hit and some things miss. And it's really interesting to see uh, such people on such a high level taking these type of risks. I know that you worked with him on an instructional on his Because Jiu-Jitsu website, which all of you should go support because Drew is a phenomenal instructor as well. And it's called Apathy Control. Can you explain to us what Apathy Control is? Yeah, it, it was something that, you know, the inception of it, I think, came from the Estima brothers, the Braulio and uh, Victor Estima. They were the ones who I'd seen both of them hit this sweep and either from like a, it's like a modified kind of waiter sweep. And then I've also seen jumping variations and I've, I've hit jumping variations at competitions of it because people feel like you're going for a, a like a jumping arm bar or a flying arm bar, but you're not, you're just going for like a sweep and they wind up inside basically a spider web on the ground. So the best way I can describe the position on the ground is like a failed spider web, essentially. So you're holding the leg, you know, you, you, you don't have the head wrapped. You've got one leg across and, and you don't have control of the arm like you would in, in a spider web as far as like an arm bar. So what it leads to, though, is fascinating as far as especially depending on what kind of entry you use. So the, the instructional shows various entries you can use uh, everywhere from side control to mount, knee on belly, to passing the guard, to um, uh, failed back control. These are all kind of entries that you can use. And it's, okay. it's a position that you enter into because you may be salvaging something that that didn't quite materialize, or you may be using it kind of deceptively. So like a, a good use of it for me, I, I think is if you're in like a reverse scarf kind of position, someone's shoving you down, trying to get you off them. And then you roll to the other side and grab their leg and typically what happens, instinctively, the person goes to sit up because they have you have no upper body control on them. Right. And they'll set up straight into an arm bar, straight into a triangle, straight to omoplata, straight into a back take. And so it's a really fun position to play. It's a very sneaky position. Whenever somebody finds themselves in it, 
they're going to make a mistake almost guaranteed every time that they, they get into it, at least the first time. You know, there's, there's ways to shut it down if you've been there before, but I think it's a position that has a lot of potential behind it. And that's how I had confidence in putting out an instructional and Drew was awesome enough to let me uh, put my instructional on uh, because jitsu and uh, it's, and it's sold well. It's been, it's been pretty popular. I, I still want to see people playing it. I took a little snapshot from a, 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 like a little maybe 10 to 15 second exchange whenever Jean-Jacques Machado was rolling with Grace Gundrum. And it, it was fascinating because I, I watched it and it just, I was, I was enthralled by the entire role because it was yeah, so cool to it's watch. A, it's an know? awesome role. Yeah, I've seen that. And there's a little segment where he he stumbles her and in the position, that's what I call apathy control. And it's what he did. And she was for just a couple of seconds, like lost. She was confused by the position because she tried to correct in a way that plays right into the position. And I mean, you know, it's Jean Jacques. I mean, he's, you know, he's on a whole nother planet as far as totally. goes. And totally. So, yeah. But it was, it was cool to see it materialized like that. And like I said, it's, it's materialized in, in other matches and everything. I want to make a collection of showing where it happened. And it's just that people didn't isolate it because they didn't need to or whatever. But I think by isolating the position, there's, there's a lot of potential behind it. What's interesting you at present time? Man, I, I just stay so like, that, and that's again, getting back to the whole social media thing and the YouTube thing and all that. I stay fascinated, you know, like I just weekly, I've got a couple different times and a couple different good friends that our whole training time just consists of us like, Hey, I saw this cool shit and I saved it. <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's drill this, let's work on it. And, or, or they do that with me and, and it's, um, you know, like this week, this past couple of weeks, we've been going back to K guard and looking at some cool K guard mm-hmm. stuff and cradles. I'm, I'm still fascinated with, I mm-hmm. think that cradles are the next big thing because you don't see them much right now. I've got several people that have wrestling and jujitsu backgrounds. And I also have several just jujitsu friends that said that they went to a couple places. They were working cradles like crazy at this place and like jujitsu places, like high level jujitsu competition places. And they were like, and they were hitting cradles like crazy and using cradles for back takes, using cradles for leg lock setups, mm-hmm. using cradles for choke setups, you know, and, and watching uh, Neil Melanson and watching uh, my friend David Patron with uh, Blackout Grappling. Those guys have really like inspired me to really explore that a whole lot. David with Blackout, David and Vinny with Blackout Grappling. I absolutely love their approach. They just put out an instructional recently with uh, a whole cradle system in the gi. So it's a, a whole hybrid cradle system and they're fascinating guys. Uh, yeah, we're, we're going to get down there to Florida and train with those guys some more. I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. Another guy who has a really great cradle in the gi uh, formula is Braulio. As you mentioned, Braulio. Yeah, Steam. I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, what? The <laughs> In the gi? But, and then also to your point too, K-Guard. K-Guard in the gi. I'd love to see more of that. Well, right now too. I mean, the K-Guard has so much potential behind it. And I think that I think Neil Melanson has really uh, got one of the best K-guard systems out there uh, as far mm-hmm. as his approach, because if, if nothing else, for the versatility of it, because most people that are using K-guard right now, and I, I don't think that this is incorrect to say, but I, I would say overwhelmingly, the biggest use of K-guard right now is just to get to leg entanglements, yeah. Yeah. get to knee bars and get to heel hooks and just leg entanglements. I think though K-guard has some great upper body attacks and even back take opportunities off of it. And yeah. um I think that's another thing that's going to just only grow and grow. It's hard. It's hard to tell sometimes like some trends will come out of nowhere, but other ones you can kind of see coming like that. And I think that's, those are both safe to say. Can you give us your thoughts on the future of jujitsu? Cradles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Uh, yeah, man. I, I think my hopeful thoughts are that I, I want to see events grow bigger than the IBJJF. That's what I want to see. And I'm not trying to be completely disrespectful to the IBJJF. I just don't want it to be the gold standard because I think that there's a lot of things with places that train strictly for IBJJF and won't deviate from training in that environment. I think that it's it's a detriment to a lot of a lot of different paths that you go down. I love yeah. watching obviously ADCC. I love EBI rules. I love combat jujitsu. I think it's phenomenal. I love watching a lot of these other like fight to win events. Um, there, there's so many good ones out there. Who's number one? All these it's submission underground. There, there's too many to name, but they're all over the place, right? And and, and there doesn't need to be one universal monopoly on jujitsu. My passion these days is way more in no gi than in the gi. And so I, I want to see, especially the growth of the no gi, the submission only formats, I think are really good. I love seeing like team formats like Kasai, the, the PGF. Like I really think that it's going to only grow and get bigger and bigger. And so it'd be interesting to see a, a big federation like that, you know, the PGF develop into this big thing with like other little transplanted places all over the country and maybe even internationally where you're getting mm. this team versus this team and these events. I think it has all the all the necessary tools for it to grow and, and be like that. So that's what I'm hopeful for. I definitely don't want to see uh, jiu-jitsu ever get into the Olympics. Uh, I want to see like just it maintain kind of its current course. I don't want to see it die. I want to see it only grow and get better. Well, Eli, I couldn't thank you more for your time. I really appreciate this. Where can the listeners get more information about you, your dearth of all your offerings and, and everything else? Night Jiu-Jitsu anywhere online. I have several instructionals out there. I've got my YouTube channel, obviously. I've got my Patreon, which is Night Jiu-Jitsu on Patreon. I'm where I put like class footage when I'm teaching classes and, and other kind of stuff. I don't know the exact date. Hopefully soon. My recent instructional I just filmed with Jiu-Jitsu X. I think it's going to be called Choke Chains. So it's all chains of choke attacks from one to another. And I'm really excited about that one. It should be, it's filmed, it's getting edited. So it should be coming out pretty soon. I've got about six different instructionals with BJJ Fanatics, mostly about self-defense, but a couple that are a little more sporty. So what else? Apathy control. You mentioned that one. So basically, if you just like look up Night Jiu-Jitsu on all the socials, you know, you'll see me promoting these things a lot of the time. Yeah, we look forward to to it and, and your future offerings as well. Congratulations on Jiu-Jitsu X on, on fi- finishing that as well. That's awesome. And Eli, again, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, man. I really appreciate it too.